0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, Dr. Sophia Thomas, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. On today's episode, we will be talking all about men's health, from erectile dysfunction to testosterone, to all of the changes men experience as they get older. This conversation is so important because men often don't talk about their health, not to other men, not to their families, and not even to their nurse practitioner or other healthcare provider. However, our guests make a strong case for the benefits of men being open with their health concerns and questions, and we'll also discuss the latest news regarding cutting edge treatments for men's health. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Nick Cannon, the Associate Medical Director at May's Men's Sexual and Reproductive Health, And as a very special bonus, AANP President Stephen Ferrara also joins the conversation as a fellow male NP with experience in men's health. Thank you so much for joining Nick and Stephen.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: That's great. Nick and Stephen, I am so happy to be with you and so happy we're going to be talking about men's health. There's so much we need to cover here, but first of all, I want our listeners to Uh, get to know you, Nick, um, as a nurse practitioner. And Stephen, I want you to reintroduce yourself to our listeners who may have forgotten that you are our illustrious president. So Nick, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I became a
1: nurse 1998. I worked at, at Mount Sinai in the infectious disease unit and became very interested and thrown into HIV and AIDS at that time. I spent four years at Mount Sinai and went back to school and got my nurse practitioner, and immediately worked a year at Mount Sinai in their attended directed service, doing sort of a residency for the hospital on the medical side. After about a year, I transitioned to HIV medicine down in the village, Chelsea area of New York, where I spent 10 years doing HIV medicine. After my 10 years of doing HIV medicine, I transitioned up to Westchester County and started to work in men's health specifically with a urologist who specializes in sexual dysfunction and infertility but within that space we've grown the practice to deal with a lot of men's health issues and that's where I am today. And is that May's? May's Men's Health or May's Health is where I'm at today and we have a women's center as well at May's we've done some research there also, along my path, besides doing HIV, I worked at ACRIA, which is a research organization specifically focused on HIV AIDS. And I was associate medical director of an HIV special needs plan back in the early 2000s. A lot of my time as an MP at the beginning was spent dealing with HIV.
0: Wow, wonderful. That's a great history, and you sound like the perfect expert for what we're going to talk about. Now, Stephen, you yourself are the current AANP president, but remind us who you are, and did you and Nick know each other before today?
2: So that's a great question. So yes, I happen to be the AANP president, but at least that's what they tell me, and I'm uh, thrilled to serve in this role. I am also a, a male nurse practitioner, and I've had some roles in men's health as well. I happen to know Nick, we're cousins through marriage. So there is a a connection there and it just so happens that my wife, which is Nick's first cousin, also works at May's Health on the women's side and she's the one predominantly seeing the physical needs of the women in the practice. So it's a family affair, if you will, and uh, there's lots of lively conversation when it comes to common issues that that we all face. So it's a great group to consult with and to, to collaborate with.
0: Oh, I bet the holiday kitchen table discussions are pretty
2: colorful. Always colorful, never a lack of stories at the
0: table. That's great. And I just want to point out that Melissa, your wife, is actually a nurse practitioner too. Yes,
2: yeah. I, yes.
0: Okay, wonderful. Nick, on Maze's website, it helpfully and bluntly states that regarding erectile dysfunction, if you have a penis, you can achieve an erection. We just need to figure out what works best for you. First, this reminds me of a recent episode that I had with Nurse Barb when we were talking about women's sexual health and sexual health after menopause. And she mentioned that erectile dysfunction at times can be a signal to an even larger issue like heart problems. Can you speak to this?
1: Sure. So. Yes. On the website, we do have that disclaimer on there. Erectile dysfunction. So we do a pretty intense evaluation. It's very thorough uh, for our patients that come in. We're usually not the first line of treatment for patients when they have erectile dysfunction. So we're usually second or third. They've usually seen their primary before. But the reason why we do such a thorough evaluation is that there's been studies that have shown that reptile dysfunction can predate cardiovascular disease and events by about 10 years. So it is an early wake-up call for men, especially in their 40s and 50s, that they may be developing some arterial insufficiency, and that should be addressed as soon as possible.
0: Absolutely. And I remember when Viagra first came out, I was a practicing nurse practitioner, and I think they actually were researching cardiac drugs right, for uh, vasodilation, and then they just came across this drug that helped with erectile dysfunction as well.
1: Correct. Yep. That's the way that the PD-5 inhibitors were started.
0: Yeah. And so let me ask you a question because I hear commercials on the radio all the time for get Viagra or generic Viagra in the mail in a discreet box and things like that. Can you speak to, I feel like it's very important when you talk about men they really should have, in my opinion, a thorough evaluation and not just get a quick prescription for Viagra or something like that.
1: Yeah. So we see patients as young as 17, 18 years old, all the way up. Our oldest patient is probably 88 years old. We know erection issues can exist at any age range. The majority of erectile dysfunction in men under the age of 35 tends to be More emotional, psychological, relationship driven. But there's about 10% of those patients that it's not any of those, and there is something physical going on. As we age, that flips. And so, as men get older, enter into their 40s, 50s, and 60s, it becomes more of a physical issue. And that tends to be more driven by vascular dysfunction and less of a psychological issue. One of the big issues is we're not very good as men in terms of talking about things we're not comfortable with. And obviously if we're having erection issues, that is something that we usually don't talk to our friends about. We usually keep it hidden. And so there's the sites that have popped up. There's a bunch that are out there now. I think the reason why we're not the first stop for a lot of men is because they've used a lot of the the mail order places to get these medications. And for some of them, it will work very well. And for others, it won't work consistently. And that's when they start to come to us and, and try to do a full evaluation. But it would behoove any man, if he's got some erection issues, to do a thorough evaluation and see. And when we do a thorough evaluation, it is to not only do blood work to assess things that are going on in the bloods, but we do a vascular ultrasound of the cavernals artery to look at arterial blood flow, uh, we look at the trapping mechanism. That occurs uh, to rule out there's any vasoocclusive dysfunction, but we also have our patients do a psychosocial assessment to evaluate what's going on with their mood, emotionally, relationship-wise. When when I talk about a thorough evaluation, we hit every different aspect that could be going on.
0: And Stephen, I think that's probably so important to really get a full assessment of patients as well. And you and I have a colleague that actually speaks about men's sexual health and. I actually went to one of her presentations one time. I was amazed to see that there are so many different treatment options for erectile dysfunction.
2: Yeah, we don't necessarily talk about the ones that are outside of the PDE5 inhibitors, but there are options. There are injectable options that, Nick, I would say, if you could estimate the percentage of your patients who are not on oral medications, but are on the injectable medication that goes into the penis, what percentage would you estimate of your patients are on that method of treatment?
1: Yeah, I would say about 30 to 40% of our patients use injectable forms of medication for their erectile dysfunction.
2: Right. And those are on-demand usage. Can you talk a little bit about them? Because sure, I would say that prior to my experience working in the mental health field, this was not something that is routinely advertised or even, even really talked
1: about. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously when we talk treatments with our patients after we've done an evaluation, that provides us with a really good sense of what's going on. Pills are obviously First-line treatment, very easy to use. There's timing mechanisms with the oral medications that men are usually not instructed on. Some of them you have to take on an empty stomach. If pills are unsuccessful for men, second-line treatment options can be Muse, which is a urethral suppository that gets put into the tip of the penis. Not one that a lot of men would like to use or do use. It can be a little uncomfortable injections. And there's several different types of injections that are out there. Prostaglandin E1 or it comes in a branded form called edex or caverject. And then there's compounded injectable medications that come in a form of bimix or trimix. Bimix is papaverine and fentolamine and trimix would be, and those are like, like you said, Stephen, injected into the one of the sides of the cavernosum. Cavernosum communicate with each other. So you only have to inject one side and it's done basically five to 10 minutes before you want to achieve the erection. Obviously, there are some side effects with injectable medications that are not present with PD-5 inhibitors, so you have to be careful of a prolonged erection or a priapism, and that's really the clinician's job to find out the correct dosage for the patient and instruct them on how to use the medications correctly. We actually have very good success with constriction bands or cock rings. They can work very well for patients. And there are some newer forms of treatment that are out there. You probably hear about them. Um, There's shockwave therapy, which is not FDA-approved, but there's been a number of studies that have shown good double-blind placebo-controlled trials that have shown that men with mild to moderate ED can actually improve vascular flow with low-intensity shockwave therapy. You have to be careful as a consumer of the product. There are two types of sound waves that are out there shockwave devices. There's a radial shockwave device, and then there's a direct or focal shockwave device. And the data was collected on direct or focal shockwave devices, not radial devices. So you just got to be a little bit careful there. There's PRP injections to the penis now, platelet-rich plasma injections. There's been one good clinical trial on that, which has shown some effectiveness. And now more recently, there's been a study that showed some Botox injections into the cavernous can be helpful for pa- patients with mild to moderate ED. Again, those are used to help with blood flow and to help relax the smooth muscle. So you would use those either in conjunction with PD5 inhibitors or injections, or potentially if you were on pills, maybe you could potentially get off the pills if the blood flow is really improved.
2: Great. Lots of options. It's great to hear that there is continued research. It sounds like there needs to be a lot more research that's done, but at least there is alternatives that are out there. And specialists such as yourself can help guide patients to to work on the best plan that's tailored for them.
0: Absolutely. And what's so amazing is you're providing some great information, and we know that our audience is not just nurse practitioners, but the general public. And I think everything that you just said, Nick, is not generally known. People think it's just the little blue pill is their only option. And I think it's so important to communicate to men that they have so many options available and certainly a good sexual relationship with their partner needs to be achieved. And so it's great that they do have options. And I think about men as we age. There are some other changes that go on. I think about testosterone. And there are lots of changes for men that can go on in their body when their testosterone levels start to go down. Isn't that right, Nick?
1: Yes. So as part of our evaluation for erection issues, we do a thorough hormone evaluation as well. But as we age, and and the data is pretty set on that testosterone levels start to drop anywhere between ages 30 to 35. There's about a 1% drop in testosterone levels each year over year from that point forward. So we know that age is the great equalizer when it comes to lowering testosterone. There are genetic components that play a role. Some of us are going to end up with lower testosterone levels at a much younger age than other men will. And and it's not just sexual functioning that men will start to experience when their testosterone levels drop. And sexual functioning is a pretty large category so there's actually testosterone is greatly linked to libido or sex drive so men that come to us with a lower sex drive that's a great indicator that testosterone levels may be low um, if we put somebody on testosterone their libido should get better erections sometimes will lag or or not notice that much of an improvement but libido will definitely improve but there's other things that we talk about with our men that they start to experience as they age. There's some physical changes that occur. So there's a loss of muscle mass. There's an inability to gain or maintain muscle. There's abdominal weight gain that starts to occur, the beer belly or the pot belly that guys will talk about. There's mood changes that occur with lowering of testosterone. There's a lot more irritability. Anxiety levels can increase. There can be some dysthymia or a depressed mood that starts to develop from a just a generalized Somatics perspective energy levels drop late afternoon fatigue or afternoon fatigue is a very good sign that testosterone levels may be dropping thought processing. So men will start to complain of some brain fog. We see a lot of men that come to us who are finance guys who just don't feel like they're as sharp. They can't recall numbers as well as they used to. And then, obviously, we talked about the physical complaints that guys have. There's multiple different aspects that we see. We actually have patients fill out an aging male symptom score. It's a validated score that looks at all these symptoms that could be related to low testosterone. But again, I think the hard thing with testosterone is that a lot of the symptoms that you get with testosterone are also things that we will have by normal living. So if we're not sleeping well, if we're stressed, if we're having relationship issues, so there's a million and one things going on in our life that could also impact these same issues, which makes it very difficult sometimes to assess how much of this is testosterone-driven versus how much of this is just life or therapeutic sort of style that the patient has chosen.
2: Yeah, it certainly doesn't sound like this is a magic cure, uh, and it takes that extensive uh, evaluation that you were talking about to really get to the root cause. And as we know, there's very rarely one single cause. It could be a combination of things, right? And that's why it's so important to u- utilize the questionnaires that you use and the full evaluation and your method of approach to trying to correct these things.
1: Yeah, we are very thorough. Like I said at the beginning, with our evaluation, every patient sees a therapist as part of the intake process. So we do have a very thorough psychosocial component to that. We do questionnaires on anxiety, depression, lower urinary tract symptoms, sleep apnea. So we do ask about sleep apnea. What patients don't understand is that outside of aging and genetics, there's other things that are gonna impact your testosterone levels negatively. Poor sleep, uh, that can be caused by sleep apnea. By shift work, so our nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors, firemen, police officers, right? They do a lot of shift work, which is awful for circadian rhythms, for the re- release of LH and FSH from the pituitary weight. So as weight goes up, testosterone levels drop. And we run into a lot of patients who are obese now, and weight's a big problem, and they're told to lose weight, and they just don't have the energy. They can't exercise. They are, they're not motivated it's demotivating to to exercise and not see any improvement in the way you're doing. And then stress, constant stress, cortisol is just awful for other hormones in the body. And so we do, we explain to them that it's not just their age that's going to impact this. There's a lot of other things going on, as well as we see a lot of patients who have had bilateral orchiectomies from testicular cancer to Hallman syndrome to Kleinfelters, which you're going to have low testosterone and these are the guys that need to be on treatment. So there's a whole list of, of patients that we see and it's nuanced. It's not something that everybody can do and there's a safety component to it. And like you said, it's not, it's not a magic bullet. It's not something that is the fountain of youth. There needs to be an understanding that you're not going to wake up tomorrow and feel like you're 25 again. We don't have a medication that can do that, unfortunately.
0: And I think from the clinician standpoint, it's important to note that everything you just said, the thorough evaluation process, treating each patient individually, thoroughly assessing every aspect, including the psychosocial, it's not just a matter of here, come to my clinic and I'll prescribe you this testosterone and
2: you'll be great. And Nick, what I would ask you uh, is there are varied forms of testosterone from injectable to topicals to pellets. Can you talk a little bit about your preferred uh, method of uh, supplementation of testosterone and some of the pluses and minuses to each form? Sure. So when we have a patient who comes to us who
1: we've diagnosed with low testosterone and we've gone through the risks and the benefits of treatment, we offer them all the FDA approved options that are out there. And there's quite a few now that are available. So there's topical treatments, which can consist of gels, creams, underarm sort of lotion to patches. The the topicals mimic what your body was naturally doing in terms of the diurnal cycle. They have to be applied daily. The patch is fine. There's a nasal gel that you can use now. Those are fine. But with any of the topicals, if you have a young infant at home, if you have a pregnant wife, if you have anything like that, you do not want to use topicals. There's just too much risk of potential transference with that population. There's also a lot of variability in the levels when you use a topical. The absorption of the drug is different every time you apply it, no matter how good you try to do it. The absorption pattern will be different, and that's seen in the clinical trials for the topicals. There's injectable forms of testosterone, which have been around since the 1950s. Patients are usually instructed on how to do those injections themselves. If you're going to a clinic every week to get a shot, you're not going to the right place. You should be instructed on how to do the testosterone, and you should be following up with the clinician or the clinic probably every three months to check levels, but you do not need to be going to the doctor's office to get an injection every week. Um, There's different types of injections now, so um, there's drugs that come in pre- a loaded pens, which are very easy to use. The dosages on those tend to be a little bit lower, but can be very helpful. There's longer acting injectables, um, which are done every eight to 10 weeks. So there's a di- couple different options that are available there. The newer forms of that are out there are oral options of testosterone. So for years, we've been told that testosterone can never be taken orally because of the risk of liver dysfunction and liver disease. They've been able to use the lymphatic system now to get testosterone into the bloodstream without impacting the liver. And there's three FDA-approved oral medications that are out there, again, need to be taken daily. And then there's testosterone pellets, so bioidentical testosterone pellets that get placed into the fat layer, typically of the glute, which provides you with a longer normalization of testosterone, typically for three to four months. There's pros and cons to all the options. There's obviously with a pellet insertion, there's going to be some discomfort. You have to make an incision. You place the pellets in. So there may be a chance of infection, although that chance is pretty low, five, less than 5%. But you do get a very good sort of stable response to the testosterone. You don't have to worry about traveling with it or or using it. Uh, injectables, obviously once a week, but you're doing injections either into the fat uh, layer or the the muscle of the body. So you really can't be Needle phobic? If you're doing that, orals you have to take them regularly, and and the two of the oral medications are taken twice a day, so you need to be consistent with that as well. Again, with any of these options, if you are not good with adherence, you're never going to feel better uh, on the testosterone. You need to be consistent with the dosage, so you really want to pick a product that the patient is going to be happy with and that we're going to be able to get the levels that we need to achieve. That's the only way they're potentially going to feel better.
2: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And for our non-clinical folks that are listening to this, the testosterone is not injected into the penis. It is injected into no. the subcutaneous layer of, of the skin. Yes. So that I wanted to to make sure was very clear. And as far as measuring uh, testosterone levels, when is the best time that someone should have their blood drawn for testosterone
1: levels? Yeah. So when we're evaluating a patient for testosterone, we actually follow the endocrinology guidelines, which are pretty clear. So endocrinology guidelines tell us that normal testosterone is considered between 300 nanograms per deciliter to about 1150 nanograms per deciliter. I tell my patients, whenever you see a reference range that is that large, take that to mean that we don't really know where normal is. They basically defined the two aspects of abnormal. So to get a clinical diagnosis of low testosterone or hypogonadism, you have to have two morning testosterone levels that's taken before 10 o'clock in the morning, below 300 nanograms per deciliter. Um, So that that would get you the clinical diagnosis of low testosterone. Now, again, we are nuanced in our approach. So we know that a 45-year-old who has a level of 310 is not meeting the clinical definition, but if they have a lot of symptoms of low testosterone... We will treat them knowing that testosterone drops as men age so again you have to be understanding of the fact that if you're 65 and you're at 310 that's a lot different than if you're 40 and at 310 we also do look at shbg or sex hormone binding globulin remember testosterone that is put out into the bloodstream is not active for the body to use testosterone has to make its way to receptors which are located all throughout your body and the way testosterone does that it's hydrophobic. So it needs proteins in order to make its way through the blood supply. And it uses albumin and it uses SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin. SHBG we measure because when testosterone is bound by SHBG, it's irreversibly bound, meaning that testosterone cannot be used by an androgen receptor, which is located anywhere throughout the body. So the higher your SHBG levels, the lower your free or available testosterone will be. So again, we see patients all the time that come to us that will say, my testosterone levels are perfect. In fact, the other day, I had a 65-year-old patient who came to me and said, you know, my doctor tells me my testosterone is as good as a 25-year-old's. And I said, you know, that's pretty hard to believe that you have a 25-year-old's testosterone. And immediately, I knew that his SHBG levels were going to be very high. He was complaining of a lot of symptoms. We checked his testosterone level and it was 750 nanograms per deciliter, but his SHBG was over 100 and his free androgen levels were significantly low. So again, it's not just looking at a testosterone level and putting testosterone on board, it's doing a thorough evaluation. When you start treatment, we recommend checking levels one month after starting treatment. We wanna see do the levels go up and when we look for improvement, We're not looking to get testosterone levels that are 240 to 310. That's not enough of a change. Uh, That delta is not enough to notice a symptomatic difference. So we aim to get levels into the mid-normal range, somewhere between 600 to 900, and we want to see how the patient responds. So usually any dosing change or starting of treatment, we check one month after treatment. When patients are stable, we will push them out to every three or four months just to make sure that there's safety in what we're doing and the levels are continuing to look good overall.
0: Wow. Nick, let me ask you a question. How does diet play into the whole testosterone transfer? In other words, if I have a patient who's a vegetarian and so maybe have a low protein intake, does that impact testosterone?
1: No, it should not impact testosterone. We would check their albumin levels and check SHBG levels, but a vegetarian or a vegan is getting protein typically from somewhere, maybe not as much as as somebody else would, but their albumin and their SHBG levels will not be negatively impacted by that type of diet. We're more concerned about our heavier patients. What tends to happen is that um, you get more conversion from testosterone to estrogen because of the ad- increase in adipose tissue, and we get a lowering of the total testosterone levels. I am one that thinks that we don't utilize the evaluation of testosterone enough in some of our, our chronically ill patients. Our diabetics are our, our heavier patients and stuff like that. I think that a lot of them are probably dealing with some lower testosterone levels, Um, and may benefit from from normalization of those levels. Absolutely.
0: Nick, let's shift a little bit. A recent article from the New York Times came out earlier this year quoted some pretty dire statistics regarding men making regular visits to their primary health care provider. The article said that a 2022 Cleveland Clinic survey of a thousand men found that 55% said they don't get regular health screenings and that men of color were even less likely to see a provider regularly. A full 63% dodged routine visits. And Stephen, you might be able to speak to this as well. We do have a problem with men seeking primary health care services.
1: I think that men in general are not good with their overall health care. I think that's been evident for many years. One of the more difficult things about men and health is that we are driven by outcomes and how we feel. And so we're less likely to go to doctors when we're feeling well. And it's not until we are at a point where these comorbid conditions are really beyond the level that sometimes we can use initial treatments for them to get get care. There's a messaging issue that needs to occur with our male patients. And the patients that I see, we see them quite frequently. I see them every three months. The relationships that I make with my patients has been spectacular. I get phone calls from them or emails or text messages from them when they get to see their other doctors that they just want to check in and make sure that everything's going okay. So there's a relationship building that also has to occur with our male patients. Again, I think that there's messaging that has to get out to talk about preventative care, engaging these patients when they're younger, doing sort of random drug blood draws just to make sure that things are going okay. Um, I wish there was a, there was an easy answer to the question, but I'll shoot it back to you, Steve. I'm not sure it, that there, there is one.
2: Yeah, I-, I agree with everything you said, Nick there is such a challenge with preventative healthcare in general, right? Like it's hard across the board when everybody's pressed for time these days and the idea of a routine physical is just not done. And that routine physical is a check-in with your healthcare provider. It's talking about the non-medical or the non-health issues that are affecting our patient populations that have you know profound effect on how we feel and what we do what i've gotten so far from this conversation again is that it cannot be a one size fits all approach and that's where i think us as nurse practitioners can really have a unique opportunity to thrive on the relationships that we build with our patients and not just focusing on lab results or objective data that, that is easy, quote unquote, easy to do because that's what's there. I think it just goes to the importance of establishing those relationships with our patients, which is beyond the transaction, right? It's beyond the urgent care type model of, I don't feel good. I'm going to go get better at this location. And then I'm not, I'm going to ignore everything when I'm feeling well. That's not a good recipe for anybody.
1: Yeah. And I think that as nurse practitioners, and being trained in preventative medicine and creating and establishing those relationships is key. It's, it's something that if we can create relationships with men, especially at a younger age, and we can maintain those relationships, they're more apt to come for follow-ups and everything else. I think that the system is also skewed. If I have a 10 o'clock appointment and I have to wait around to 1 o'clock in the afternoon to get seen that's not going to entice me to come back to the place. So there's a lot of different things that go into follow-ups. We have late office hours one day a week, which we offer that for our patients who can't get off from work or don't have time to take off from work so they can get into the practice and get seen. And it's amazing that you do establish patients who utilize that time slot quite frequently because if they didn't have that, they would not be coming for care. So I think there's a lot we can potentially do, but it all comes down, like you said, to that relationship building that is so important because a lot of this is not so much objectively driven. It's subjectively talking to the patient and understanding what they're going through.
0: Absolutely. And with men's health care, I think it's critical that we make men as comfortable as possible to seek health care. We really take that holistic approach to addressing everything with them and including their psychosocial needs, not just their physical, and really tailor and individualize the treatment with them as their partner to determine what's the best fit for them. Hopefully we won't have people looking for just a quick fix, but really understand the importance of a thorough holistic evaluation of the patient. Think you'd agree, Steven?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. I think it's just, again, an area where nurse practitioners can really fill in a a huge void and lead. And I'll say there's more work that we can do in this area. And Nick, I would ask you, a lot of this, of what you learned was from the urologist that you work with and a lot of the the being with them. Of course, you have the scientific basis of it, but a lot of it was really um, once you were there and practicing.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. We're not specifically taught any of the things we talk about. As you mentioned at the beginning, most of us only know that it's Viagra and Cialis, right? So we don't think about anything else. We don't know about anything else. Testosterone has always been considered taboo for a lot of providers. So yes, a lot of this is learned, unfortunately, on the job or by just doing your own sort of reading and everything.
0: Nick, I have to say, um, it's great that you're doing what you're doing. I, I, as a NP, appreciate you dedicating your role to the treatment of men's health and erectile dysfunction and testosterone and all those things that men need. So thank you for joining us here on NP Pulse. I think you've educated a lot of people.
1: Thank you, Sophia. I really appreciate it.
0: And Stephen, as always, it's a pleasure to have you join us here on NP Pulse.
2: Yeah. Thank you both, Nick and Sophia. It was great information on this episode. And I hope, like you said, people get some, some education that they may not have known previously.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Stephen and Nick, thank you for joining us. Be sure to take advantage of the early bird pricing for the 2024 AANP National Conference taking place in Nashville, Tennessee from June 24th through the 30th. The National Conference offers a wide range of valuable CE on a variety of topics, including men's health. I hope to see you there, and thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner.